Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Legends, howdy! You are listening to episode 139 of the Howie Games, part A, featuring a truly incredible individual, Curtis McGrath. Curtis McGrath heads for golden hat-trick, the mighty McGrath. He makes it three from three at the Paralympics. From a kid growing up playing all sorts of sport to a near-death experience in Afghanistan whilst serving his country to Paralympic glory, Curtis McGrath is one seriously impressive customer. As much detail as this chat does go into, it really only scratches the surface of what Curtis writes about in his phenomenal new book, Blood, Sweat and Steel, which is released on the 17th of November. You can pre-order Blood, Sweat and Steel right now through Booktopia or wherever you get your books. So you search and try to find but you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by As you're about to hear, I have no understanding at all of what life is like in the modern Australian army. Curtis lifts the veil on what training involves, how deployment works, and what life was like on the ground in Afghanistan for foreign troops. When you think about it, all those news stories of tragic events, bombings, extreme hardship, death, in some ways they can wash over us when they just sort of pop up in a two-minute news story from the other side of the world. It's shocking, really, when you think about it, how little we take in. Places we hear about, Kabul, Bagram, the Oresgan province, Tarrant Cout. I've got no real idea of where they are or what's actually going on, even though they have been in the news for most of this century. Curtis fills in so many gaps for me and hopefully for you. Now, occasionally on this show, people talk about things that are way beyond my understanding, things that I really struggle to comprehend due to my lack of experience in those areas. This is undoubtedly one of those episodes where I have to go back and listen from scratch to make sense of it all. A quick shout out right now to all our servicemen and women who are currently serving or who have served Australia. We are no doubt indebted to them all. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes Now, sometimes on this podcast, I ask a favour of you all to recommend the pod to others to make it grow. This is one episode I really hope you'll tell others about so they can hear a really humble man talk about mateship and courage, about fear and pain, about the spectre of death and the hope of life, and the benefits of never, ever giving in, no matter how dire the situation may seem. It is a true privilege to have this man on the show. This is the story of Curtis Wayne McGrath, OIM. So when you search and then you find and know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind, you see clearly and now you know mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie. I come on, children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Welcome to the Howie Games, a triple. Paralympic gold medalist in quarantine at the moment, but hopefully when this gets out, he is out and free and roaming. Curtis McGrath joins us on the Howie Games. How are you, mate? Great to see your smiling face. How's quarantine going for you? Yeah, it's actually been pretty good, um, quite productive. There's been um, a lot to do 
um, you know, podcast, media, um, doing speaking engagements, uh, getting them all sorted, and then and obviously finishing off my book as well. So there's not been too much time for down downtime, but uh, you know, it's been nice to have this time to in order to get my affairs in order so I can get out of here and, and relax a bit more. Well, I hope the last four days goes really quickly for you, mate. Has it given you a chance to reflect, and we'll, we'll speak about Rio and Tokyo later, but has it given you a chance to reflect on your two events and two gold medals? And congratulations, by the way, mate. Uh, myself and the wife and the kids were jumping around in front of the telly numerous times watching you compete. I, has it given you a little bit of downtime to realise the enormity of what you've done, mate? And again, uh, massive congratulations. Yeah, thank you, firstly. Um, it definitely has. Um, you know, I think it was maybe like a couple of days after our races we were given all the race footage. Um, so, you know, that always sends you back down into the the moments and the feelings of, of the races. So um, to re- look back on that and, and realise what I achieved was, was pretty cool. We will go into great depth, stroke <laughs> by stroke later in the show, mate. Uh, one of the reasons we're talking is you've just released a new book, uh, Blood, Sweat and Steel. People need to read it because it will explain to them a lot of things about life and it will give them a lift, no doubt. Um, congratulations also on the book, mate. What's been the process like about getting your thoughts on paper of what's been an extraordinary life? Again, a, a chance to reflect, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's 100% that. It's this huge sort of re- reflection and, and sort of trip back down memory lane in, in a lot of sense and a lot of moments in my life that, you know, I'd put on the shelf really and, and not not thought about. And then as you go through it in a Sort of did it. I'm writing it with, um, or written it with uh, James Phelps. He's the the man with the skill in order to bring my my story and put it on the pages. So, um, you know, without without him, it wouldn't be possible. But the we, we went through it in a chronological order, sort of. We, sorry, we we did the army stuff first and and tried to get all that right because that takes a little bit longer to to explain and and. You know, I would explain it in heaps of depth and then we'd go back and we'd slice it up so it's nice and digestible to to people that don't understand the full military jargon, the way the system and the format and the structure works. So, And then we went back to my childhood and and, and started uh, there. So, um, you know, initially the book was meant to come out last year after the Tokyo Games, so um, we delayed it and then gave us a bit more time to sort of really um, refine it down, which has been good. And, and as you said, like a, a huge um, reflection review of my life, you know, all 33 years of it. And as a, as a 33-year-old man, you've got so much life ahead of you and never having you met you before but always listening to you in interviews, your, you know, humility is one of your one of your traits, I guess. You're a very humble man. But but when you when you put it all down on paper, do you view it that you have lived a remarkable life, which is the external view people would have of you, that you have had a remarkable life to this point, mate. Yeah, and, and I often, you know, people people often say, oh, you know, it was like nine years ago that I was injured in Afghanistan and that was, you know, it feels like yesterday. And I was like, well, it, it does in some ways, but if you think about all the things that's happened since then and, and I've achieved and experienced since then, um it's a very long time ago. Um, you know, the, the amount of work and and energy you put into going from, you know, the, the Afghanistan battlefield to, you know, to the, the Tokyo podium, it's, you know, a huge amount there. Yeah, absolutely. Blood, Sweat and Steel is Curtis's book. Um, you'll be able to get it now in, uh, I think the expression always goes, in all good bookstores. Isn't that what they say, mate? Yeah, Booktopia <laughs> is the main one at the moment. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 it is. Good. Yeah, online is the, is the way it's going. Um 
I really want to speak to you about your army life and uh, I'll chat about that in a moment. But growing up, sporty kid, where'd you grow up? A little bit all over the place. So I have a bit of an interesting upbringing. I was born in New Zealand down in a place called Dunedin. We're living in the central Otago area of the South Island um, and then moved to Wanaka and then up to Christchurch and then moved over to Western Australia uh, where we lived on a farm. Parents just want a lifestyle change um, and, and enjoyed the outdoors. I went to boarding school for a year and a bit in Perth and um, and then my parents, uh, you know, I was all of what thirteen then, so I didn't have too much say on where I was and what I was doing with my life. Um, they wanted to move back to New Zealand to to manage some family uh, business things, uh, property and things like that. So we moved back to Queenstown, and I sort of finished off my my youth, so to say, in Queenstown. So always sort of in, in places that have a good outdoor presence, good sporting yeah. presence, um, and uh, I and dabbled in a little bit of everything um especially in western australia um i you know i learned what afl was there for the first time so i followed the eagles um i uh played field hockey did a heap of swimming um it's pretty much the main sport there i did athletics cricket when the bledisloe cup is on are you cheering for the All Blacks or the Wallabies or when uh, New Zealand is playing Australia in cricket, uh, who are you cheering for? I want uh, a straight answer here. You, you can't grow up in a Kiwi household without supporting the All Blacks um, to the okay. New Zealand. So it's, it's you know, it, it'll go to the grave with me, I'm afraid. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that I, you know, you pick your team, you get your team, you stick with it and, and you, you know, you, uh, chopping and changing teams is, is not my style. So, yeah. And uh, in the cricket, New Zealand as well? Oh, yeah, I think so. There will always be okay. you know, a, a place in my heart for the New Zealand cricket team. Is, is you know they're, they're doing amazing at the moment yeah. um, and, you know, good on them. And it's been a tough old ride, that New Zealand cricket team, for uh, forever almost. It feels like my lifetime anyway. Mate, I mentioned to you before we started that um, people often say to me, if I should listen to one podcast on your show, who is it? And I say it's not representative of the show, but it's a gentleman by the name of Jack Jones who played in premierships for Essendon in the late 1940s, but he was discovered as a footballer um, on the rough grounds of Bougainville after fighting at the end of the Second World War in Papua New Guinea against the Japanese and He's um, Curtis. He's the uh, he's the unfortunately passed away a year and a half ago. He's the greatest Australian that I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. But his descriptions of what it means to serve your country just absolutely blew me away. And that I'd love to explore that with you. It, it it's it's funny, isn't it? In America, it is such a big deal to have served your country and. Mm. It is such a respected position and it's an exalted position. It's a respected position here, but it always sounds, I don't know if it's the wrong thing to say or the right thing to say, but, and I don't want it to sound corny, but thanks for serving your country, mate. Like it's a tremendous thing and uh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, cheers. Um, I, I guess uh, for me, you know, I was trying to get in the military at 17 years old and that that sort of doesn't, that that's not a part of an eighteen year old's thinking. It might be in the time of of, of a, a world war. It's it's quite a bit different, I think. You know, there's there's um, a little bit more patriotism in that sense mm. that you're, especially you know, World War Two. You know, Australia was threatened like quite severely. You know, the bombing of Darwin, Sydney Harbour, submarines with the Japanese. Like there's so, so much like on our doorstep. Whereas my time when I enlisted is. Uh, somewhat of a different era, you know, a different side of 
of what it means to to go out and help. And my job as a as a combat engineer was it was predominantly a humanitarian mission. So at the same time, you know, representing a nation um, in that way is is very you know honourable, and I'm very um, pleased that I got the opportunity to to do that um, at the age and at the time and in the countries that I that I went to. So, yeah. So what was what was your motivation as a 17 or 18 year old? You know, what, what's your motivation to to sign up to a life of discipline? Yeah, um, you'd be surprised. Um, it's it's only usually in the initial phases that the army is is truly discipline orientated or or regimental is probably the best word. You know, there, there's there's reason to the discipline. There's there's structure to the discipline, and there's there's motivation for the discipline as well. And then that creates the regiment regimental way of life with the army. So having that routine, understanding the rules and what's expected, required and wanted from you um, is understood when you finish the training parts. It's generally in a training situation that you'll get that that regimental um, manner from the instructors. So, you know, the, the full metal jacket type situation, that's guys going through basic training, learning to be infantry soldiers. That's what we get when we're at basic training. And then when we move on to our uh, it's called employment, um, initial employment training, so the engineer side of training for me. Uh, so how full-on is that initial, like you're a bloke off the street, you've been living your life, how full-on is that, how long is that initial period and what type of stuff goes on? <laughs> it is a, it is a, an interesting aspect to our uh, the army sort of or the military life. That basic training is, is probably the, the biggest shock to everyone. Um, you know, you go in with a head full of hair, and you're no idea about what's ahead of you and you get loaded onto a bus and it's all sort of hunky-dory and, and you're t- chatting <laughs> everyone and, oh, what are you doing and who are you and where are you from and blah, blah, blah. And from the, it was from a, an airport hotel driving to, to Wagga Wagga um, here in, sorry, here in Sydney all the way to Wagga Wagga. So it was a bit of a, bit of a drive. And uh, you get there in the evening and um, you... This corporal walks onto the bus and he says, all right, everyone, what you're going to do is going to get off this bus, go out there and and, and stand in a, a formation. It's going to be three three lines or four lines or whatever it was, and you're going to put, put your bags next to you. And, and and you're not going to do this until I say go. And then he has a bit of a, you will address me as corporal and you will address everyone else as, as sir or sergeant or, or um, ma'am or, or whatever, and wherever the yeah. delineation is. And then... All right, go. And we all race off the bus, grab our bags and get into this formation. And he goes, all right, anyone who's holding any contraband, weapons, anything, present them now and uh, you'll be, that'll be the end of it. You'll get them once you leave here. And it's very much like that until the end. So I say, or you listen, I, I say, you listen, you do. And to to the letter. And it's it's very structural. And if you go off that, that that instruction, that's when they'll come down on you and be like, you know, you, what are you doing? They'll, they'll yell at you and all that sort of stuff. And it's about understanding that um, the, the orders and the, necess- the necessity to execute them in a deliberate and thorough and um, accurate manner. And it's not about, you know, belittling them or, or me or, or whoever and, or 
putting them down and to make them feel weak and unwanted. It's 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 more about that. And and when you start to realize that I went into the army and the basic training with that idea already there, I wasn't you know scared of them yelling at me. And I, a lot of people aren't used to that at all. Have never been told. Mm-hmm. No, or not, not no, but you know, an order or a direction that's so thorough, and they'll micromanage every aspect so you get it right, and that's the point. So you get it right. Reading on your website, this really interested me. Two thousand and eight, three months jungle training in Malaysia. (laughs) Okay, now, like, because I have no experience in the military. You know, it sounds ridiculous, but your understanding is born by watching people yell at celebrities on SAS <laughs> or watching Rambo running through the jungle. You know what I mean? Like that's the ignorant yep. position that I come yep. from and, and anyone that hasn't served comes from. So what, what's jungle training in Malaysia entail? Is it, is it as bad as it sounds? It is utterly horrible. Like it's the hardest, <laughs> hardest physical thing I've ever done in my life like by a long way. So for example, we, we get, we're in Brunei. Um, so we've, we've gone from Malaysia and we've flown over for, to Brunei just to do some relationship building part of the government thing. I don't know what they're doing, but they're like, oh, come over and, you know, use our um, training grounds and, you know, we'll treat you some jungle warfare stuff and, and, and enjoy Brunei. And we're like, oh, okay, cool. Off we go. Jump on a plane, hop over, get there. And we get, I think we did like a, like four days of, of preparation, so packing our gear and, and getting used to the Brunei way of things, which was no different from the Malaysian way. And uh, we then jumped on this big boat, uh, this like big barge, and went way up this river into you know the heart of Borneo, pretty much. The and wow. um, get off there, and they're like, All right, your camp is like about four, three, four k into the jungle. It was actually like 2.7K into the jungle. That way there's a there's a path there. What we're going to do is don't do an admin move. So that means that it's not under tactical um, scenario. So we're not getting shot at or anything like that. It's just we move all this stuff 4K that way. All right, cool. No worries. So we put all our stuff on and my pack's probably weighing like 50-odd kilos, 50, 52-odd kilos. I had 11 litres of water on my bag, so, you know, there's quite a bit of stuff there. All the ammunition, well, not all the, like, all the ammunition for me um, and, and then maybe some some section stores, maybe like a Claymore mine, like a, a, a mock one that we, we don't really use the real ones unless it's real um, or training, training. But um, all that sort of stuff, you know, it weighs your pack down, all your sleeping gear, um, and we start walking and we go up. And we go down, and we go up, and we go down. And it, we, it took, I think it took like eight and a half hours, seven and a half hours to go 2.7 Ks. Um, there was there was 32 in my troop or platoon um, walking in. And by the end of six days of jungle training, there was only eight guys that were still physically able to do the tasks required. Um, a lot of guys fell over, broke their hands, um, twisted ankles, went down with heat. It, it was just unrelenting. Just the the jungle, such an inhospitable environment for war. Like, and it made me realize that the guys in World War Two just like we were doing simulations, and no one was. What does that mean? Us. 
What, what does that mean? Like what, what are you doing and you're up there for six days? Yeah, so we're doing no. patrols. So we're doing sort of mock scenarios of um, patrolling in the jungle. So just walking around in an area to have influence and control over the area. And that's what the guys were doing in in, East, uh, in, in World War II in the jungle. Mm-hmm. But like I said, you know, it's up, it's down, it's muddy, it's wet, it's hot, it's cold because it rains at 3 p.m. for about an hour straight. Um almost on the dot you can hear it coming like it sounds like a a freight train coming down the road bit slower but yeah and then it just hammers down and by that time you've sort of set up camp because at night time it is so dark that your night vision goggles don't work but there's no light coming in from the the sky so the night vision goggles aren't actually night vision they they need a little bit of ambient light for them to work they just pick up a bit more they're just a better version of our eye they just pick up more light and you so you're sleeping in a tent nope you're sleeping Maybe in a bivy bag, um, or like just a ground mat with a sleeping bag over you. So snakes, creepy crawlies. Uh, yeah, lots of creepy crawlies, lots of ants. I've never seen uh, ants as big as this. Cent- centipedes, um, yeah, just spiders, scorpions, you name it. They're all there. Um, yeah, it's it's a yeah, it's it's in hospital. It's so crazy. So, it's yeah. it's a it's a brilliant description, mate. Again, now I, I'm relying on watching movies, and I want to point that yep. out. This is so <laughs> ignorant the position I'm coming from, which is why I'm fascinated what you do. And then you see them sort of pull out uh, the food, like the rations, and it's you know freeze dried or whatever. Is, is is that the go? I presume you're not getting a roast dinner at the end of the night. Cause... No, no. But one of the best ration packs I've ever had was on that trip, actually, on that that patrol. So the Bruneians were with us, making sure that we didn't get lost because it's super easy because the canopy is so thick. You know, using machetes to cut through and all that stuff, but carrying all that weight, you know, a lot of it was food. We had to carry our food in for six, seven days, just a, an emergency one as well. There was a chopper landing pad which took out some people that had broken themselves, um, but. You know, that, that was only an emergency. So, you know, we got in there and bust open our ration packs. And our ration packs in Australia, we have two versions. There's the wet ones and the dehydes. And the dehydrations are probably the lightest ones because there's obviously no liquid in them. But we were carrying the wet ones and that means they're heavier. You can just squeeze them straight into your mouth. You don't have to worry about carrying water with them, whereas the dehydrate, dehydrated ones, you want to tip water in them to, and then... Um, but yeah, the the, the Bruneian ones. Um, I saw, we traded one, and they had like this prawn or shrimp laksa dehydes, and tipped some hot water in that, and it was like literally going down to the 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 local um, takeaway <laughs> shop and asking for a, like a, a prawn laksa. It was so, or like a shrimp laksa. It was so good. But maybe I was just starving. I, I don't know. It was it was bloody amazing. <laughs> and across the Australian army. Was there a ration pack that everyone's like, oh, no, we've got the yep. such and such? The H-pack, which was, so they're, all, they're named on, they're named by letters in the H-packs, okay. the, the vegetable curry. And, yeah, you can have one, but for some reason the army would always order like 50-50, so 50% <laughs> meat and then 50% and no one wanted the, the vegetable once. So you'd have like an abundance of vegetable. The H-pack was horrible. But they, they have evolved and improved. Now you get like tuna sachets and jerky and Skittles and all that sort of stuff in them. So yeah, when I first joined it was oh, like dehydrated chocolate, which is like powdered chocolate. and Well, they're not actually, but it's so old that, yeah. <laughs> it does say um, for prison or military consumption only. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> only. Yeah. So not for the general population. Oh, it doesn't make sense. Like, why? Why would they? Uh, 
why would it why would it be just those people like, what's the difference <laughs> even prisoners know. like what what's the difference <laughs> if i'm sitting in a jungle in the back of borneo and it says only suitable for prisoners or or military folk i'm getting a bit concerned um y- y- your weapon the other mm. cliche that is played out is that you always have to have your weapon with you, yeah. and if you don't, there's hell to pay. Is that is that is that yep. truth? Yep, hundred percent. So in basic training, we'll go back to, to Wagga Wagga, yep. and you're not quite used to that rule yet. It's it's kind of like, kind of like now we walk around with our phone and we know like shit, our phone's missing. Um, whereas it, like that's the kind of feeling if you're on out out on patrol and you've been issued that weapon. So that weapon, it's got a serial number. It's been issued to you and it's your you're 100% responsible for that weapon. So if you lose that weapon or misplace it, it is there's a shitstorm coming, like a big one. Anyway, back to basic training. <laughs> shitstorm, that doesn't <laughs> sound there's good. There's no better way to put it. Um, right. Same with your night vision goggles too. Um, and then you're sitting down in like a, an area and we're having arrests and then you like get called over for something to the corporate, they want to ask you a question or, or task you to do something or get someone to do something. And um, you walk over there. I didn't do this, but I've seen it happen. Or I don't think I did this. And you, you're standing there at attention and they're talking to you. And they're talking like, you know, reasonably. They're not yelling. They're just like, oh, can you do this, 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 this? And you're like, yes, corporal, yes, corporal. And then they look at you and they freeze. And you're like, shit, what have I done? <laughs> and they're like, where's your weapon? And they're like, and you can't turn and go run and get it because they're talking to you because that's, you know, disrespect in its own right. <laughs> and <laughs> and then they start yelling at you and then they're like, get down your guts and leopard crawl. And it could be like 150 metres. So you're leopard crawling on the ground all the way. And by the time you get your elbows are bruised and bleeding and knees are bruised <laughs> and you've crawled all the way there and then you get, you know, a, a punishment for it. You know, you might might have to clean something, you might have to clean like the corporal's weapon or, or you might have to clean your weapon and have it inspected like five times a day and, and that sort of thing. Or you you are issued something like a mop, for example, and you're, you have to carry this mop everywhere and that's your punishment everywhere, like the weapon. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so in this, it, whether it be in Borneo or another example that you, you may want to give or not give, when things were at its toughest in these training phases, how did you get through? Like what are you telling yourself when when blokes are getting carted out of the joint? Yeah, it, it, is, it is, you know, in those moments you, you start looking for motivation. You start looking for the, the, the positives in it or, or the, you know, glass half full or even, you know, the pessimistic side like, thank God we've only got a few more days of this or because that's optimism but not in a way. It, um, the the way I found is that you're all in this together because you always do things with the team and your mates and that's when the Australian larrikinism comes out. That's when the the dark humour, the, the funny shit that, you know, we <laughs> probably shouldn't go into here, but just the, the, the funny stuff that starts happening. You start playing pranks on each other. Um, you start... <laughs> You know, telling very crude jokes or, or having crude stories or you reminisce about something that we did. You start taking yourself out of that mo- that area or that that hardship that, and you just 
start having yarns and, and the larrikinism comes out of it. But you definitely, um, for your mates, firstly, and, and then secondly, to to get the job done. And and that's, you know, let's get it done. Let's, you know, knock it off and then we can cop something else. <laughs> but, yeah. So when Afghanistan comes on your radar, is it a choice or you are told? How does that work? It, it's sort of a... Um, there is a choice. There's 100% always a choice um, in, in the current you know, environment. would be different if we were at like proper war, I, I would imagine. Yes. Um, however, if you say no to that any deployment really, um, you're then sort of, the word is blacklisted, but it's not blacklisted. There's still ways to get around and back onto another deployment. Um, but if you say no to a deployment, there, there's a large question mark next to your name about why you're in the military. Like, what are you doing here if you're not able to contribute the skills in which the army or the military has taught you to the government mis- mission or, or the, the national interest? Okay. That's the big picture thinking. So, so when you are asked the question, Curtis, there's an opportunity for you to go to Afghanistan, is it an immediate yes? Is it a thought process? Is there loved ones involved that you discuss it with? Um, the, the, usually you're, you're just brought into a room all together as a troop. It might be like a knockoff point thing um, yep. or it might be like a midday like briefing from the command, like the, the lieutenant, the, the troop commander, and they say, you know, there's, there's a deployment coming up. They, they need, you know, 35 guys. You know, there's 30 guys in here, so you're all going to be on it. We're going to bring in a few more guys and then we'll start our training here. And it's quite like an official type thing. Usually you get wind of it. And the, the Army is a rumour mill. Uh, there's lots of rumours <laughs> going on and uh, talk about this trip and that trip. And most of it is just hot air, but sometimes it, it comes through. And generally it comes through from, you know, command down. For my instance, I had just um, started some leave without pay. Um, I wanted, I'd been in the army like five and a bit years and I wanted to sort of rethink about what I was doing in the army because I wasn't too much, I loved my mates and, and the guys I was working with in the army. I wasn't too much enjoying my uh, job because okay. effectively I was a labourer. And that was okay, but um, I just wasn't enjoying it too much. And I wanted, you know, to to use the skills because the, the army engineers are, or the combat engineers, it's such a big role. Mm. Anyway, I was just a little bit all over the place and I wanted to take some time off, rethink about what I was doing and um, maybe change my trade yep, or leave the military and, and uh, do something else. And so I... Um, I took the leave without pay and I think it was like the second or third day. I took four months leave without pay and I was in the Rabina shopping centre in the Gold Coast with my mate. We were just about to head to Europe. I think we are leaving in two days' time, head to Europe to go on a Kentucky tour and, you know, see the world, have a bit of fun. And um, I answered the phone call and he's like, hey, like, what are you, what are you up to? Like, <laughs> I was like, uh, so I'd like I'm, I'm going on my leave. Like, I'm at the mall and I'm buying a, you know, a new suitcase and all that sort of stuff. And uh, he's like, well, you know, I mean, like, what, what are you doing with, like, army and, like, what, what are you up to? Because I had talked to him about potentially changing. Yep. He goes, well, put this into your thinking. There's a trip to Afghanistan. We're going to put your name forward for it. I'm going to attach to 2CR. I was like, look, Sarge, I don't need to think about that one. Like, I want to go on this trip. 
um, because, you know, I'd been training for so long for a trip like this and it's probably the only chance we'll get to utilise all those skills in which we get tested all the bloody time and never actually get to use them. And I had a lot of friends that were um, had done the deployment and, you know, some guys that had some were not... I would say friends, mates, but like I wouldn't say good friends and, you know, that, that had been killed or injured and, and that was something that we knew that was a part of our role. Um, not that we wanted that to happen, but we understood that the dangers of it. But it was just something that, you know, I felt like I could contribute and, and be a part of that team. And the way I, like, I've got a really good analogy for that and it's like being on a, a rugby team or a, or a netball team or whatever and you train and train and train and train and train but you only ever sit on the bench and watch your mates go out on the field and you never get to get out on the field and play the actual game. Yeah, you can run through some mock games where training, but not Mm. against another team, Um, you know, to test, not to test yourself. I think that's probably the wrong word, but just the analogy of feeling like you're not able to use what you've been taught or to be a part of that. And and that was the reason why I, I was so quick to say yes. What's it like for those? And I don't know what your status was. Obviously, you've got you, you're beautifully married now, and mm. I saw your wife on the Paralympic yeah. coverage cheering <laughs> for you back in Queensland. I don't know what your status was now, but what's the conversation like with loved ones at home, whether it's friends or family or those that you you know that that you're intertwined with? Yeah, and I guess at that stage in my life, I was not too heavily committed. I did have Rachel; she was my girlfriend then, and. Um, you know, she was very supportive. Her father was in the British military as a padre. He was a Kiwi but was recruited through a different system um, and was in the, the British military as a padre. And, you know, she understood that there was deployments and and, and dangerous missions and things like that that would be um, put in and, and I would be involved in. But um, at that stage, you know, I was more interested in, in, in actually getting the opportunity to go out there and, and, and use my skills and, and be a part of that that um, that campaign or that mission. So um, it was not a, a decision that I consulted <laughs> my loved ones too much. Um, I sort of told them what, what it was up and I think they knew that I was excited and wanted to do that. So um, that was something that was definitely my choice and um, I think if they had known the dangers as thoroughly as I did, uh, they probably would have had some um, objections to my deploying. Next up on the podcast, another edition of The Next Chapter with swimming superstar Kate Campbell. Now, last time Kate was on the pod, she floored me and many of you with her descriptions of not living up to her own expectations at the Rio Olympics. A few years later, Kate's story has continued. More Olympic medals in Tokyo this time and more honesty from one of my favourite athletes. Talk me through your lead-up and the preparation and, and how you gathered it up again, Kate, physically and mentally. Yeah, it was um, – I'm just going to put a little side note in here, Howie. Please do. Um, I'm going to disclose something that I haven't told anyone. Um, I'll I'll probably be sharing it publicly in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Um, but because it'll have been shared publicly, yes. I, I'm, I'm happy to, to chat about it now. Um, okay. But just, yeah, it's just a side note in there. Thank you. If you haven't heard Kate's original story alongside her sister Bronte, it's episode 71 of the show. Let's get back to Curtis. So, again, all we see, I've been fortunate enough, Curtis, to see a fair bit of the world. I obviously haven't been to Afghanistan. So 
but I, I, you know, I follow world events and I'm fascinated by places, but all we see and read and hear in Afghanistan is sort of dust and mountains and and bombs going off and and sort of huge cargo transports coming in and out of the airport. And we've seen a lot of that, obviously, in, in the last few weeks with everything that's happened in Afghanistan. What was your initial thoughts when you arrived in Afghanistan of the country? Um, I guess... I'll just go back a tiny bit, and, and Please do. The, the the training in which we did in order to get to Afghanistan was immense. It was so massive. We did all the training that I'd done before that, like before that phone call, before my my time yep. off, and then eleven months of pre deployment training and specific, eleven months. Yeah, specifically. What, 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 What's the focus of that 11 months? High research, specifically on finding improvised explosive devices, caches, landmines, and safety around those that, that, that sort of situation. So, so so that's your job? 100%. Yep, we are the... It, it, can, it, can it be any more dangerous than doing that? Uh, yeah, you could do that in a firefight. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. And, and we do train for that stuff, um, and that's why the infantry are behind us ready to go. They're ready for that firefight, but we're looking at the ground and, you know, looking at, the, you know, making sure that... What, what are you doing? Tell, tell me. what. So you're trying to find the... All we know them as IEDs. We don't know anything about them. Like yeah. what What are they and, and what's your role, mate? So an IED is, is an improvised explosive device. It's pretty much a homemade landmine, but it can incorporate a commercially made... Uh, factory-made landmine. So that, that they don't even have to have any other components if they've got that capability. And then they become very, da- very, very dangerous because they're very hard to find because of our you know, human advancements within that area. Um, but at the same time, predominantly they are, you know, someone's pulled apart a TV, a car, figured out how to join the, a circuit and then hooked it up to a... a a detonator and then have an initiator so like a, a pressure plate or a, a trip wire or you know when you walk into a, a your, your general store and you get the ding dong the door chime that's yeah. an infrared trigger that can also trigger an IED all that sort of stuff like there's so many different types there's a radio there's command wire there's mobile phones it's they're very sophisticated in some ways but they are very rudimentary in others so initially they were using like back in 2010 or not probably a little bit earlier than that, maybe 2007, they were using like massive saw blades, you know, like your general hand saw. They'd use that. So when you step on it, get two of them and they'd, they'd touch each other. So, you know, the oh, flats, and that'd, that'd create that the would circuit. create the circuit. So that's in its, you know, um, fundamental principles. That's how they were making them. Um but then they got more sophisticated. They started using carbon rods. They started using really little bits of metal. So our metal detectors, which we use to search the ground, um, can't find. And that's why I stepped on. Well, I stepped on something that was was some very, well, it was still fundamentally the same, but it was no metal in it. So I, I, we couldn't find it with a metal detector. So are you are you? Through through the training process and then and then your role, which I'm sure you'll get to, are you being told we think that there could be an IED in this area? I, I know, I know I'm I'm apologising again for my ignorant questions. Or are you patrolling an area to clear of of any potential danger? 
Yeah, so our role was to be, uh, we, we provide mobility. That's our official role in Afghanistan. Our, our official okay. role overall is to provide mobility and deny mobility. So we deny mobility to the enemy in a conventional warfare sense, but in yep. an uncon- in conventional warfare, we uh, provide mobility. So allowing okay. the patrol and everyone else behind us to move freely without the threat of standing on an IED or driving over one or, or being hit by something that is set up and not necessarily ambush situation um, because that that starts getting really complicated with other people and enemy forces, but an ambush initiating event, which can be the IED. So we're out the front where there's no one in front of us usually, um, you know, yes, there's no one else in front of us. And we are searching the the ground behind, in front of the, the patrol. There's, there's two searches usually, and then there's two guys. One's the commander, and then the other one's the reserve, Or and then they sort of, we all rotate in a way just to give everyone a rest because it is hard and very, very um, deliberate work, like you're, oh. you're focusing. So we're, we're out the front doing that. And you get very, very good at it. You get very good at it. So, you know, we, we get, um, you know, like I said, eight, 11 months of training on this this matter and it becomes, you know, you know what to look for. You look for patterns. You look for signs. You look for... What do you mean? What do you mean patterns and signs? Um, so in certain areas, they'll use certain types of devices so you can see where, like, the devices, how it's set up on the ground and you start to see that there's a pattern there and oh, they're putting that there so we can come on from that angle. That sort of pattern, they're using um, the same sort of device so we can we know what we're looking for and what the signal and sounds look like. Um, um, signage, like little piles of rocks, which I've never seen an IED. Apparently in the past they use them as markers. There would be piles of rocks and it really freaks out the... Um, the patrol commanders, not not the engineer commander, but the patrol commander because they don't quite have the knowledge that mm. we do. They're like, oh, pile of rocks, go search. You're like, well, shit, like, is there anything else here that it's usually the, the, the presence of two things creates a problem and it's, you know, sometimes there's a pile of rocks just because kids want to be kids and make pile of rocks, you know, and they <laughs> the patrol commanders start freaking out thinking there's IEDs yes. everywhere, but it's, it's just a matter of, you know, um, Mitigating the threat, and that—that's what we're doing. Yeah, so. And what? So what happens when you discover a, an IED? What's the process then? What are you trying to do at that point? Um, we, yeah, it's a bit of a depending on what what it is. Um, but we we obviously wave our metal detector over, get her a hit, and we start searching. So we actually get down on our guts a little bit back and start pulling away dirt um, with our hand Bloody and hell. paintbrush. Very, very, very delicately. And then we obviously expose whatever that is. It could be a bloody Coke can tab or it could be a pressure plate or it could be a battery or it could be a piece of rubbish, tinfoil, you know, anything that's metal. And if it's metal, you just try to, you know, search underneath it, make sure there's nothing else there and then put it in your pocket and then search again. Nothing there, all right, move on. But if there is something there, you then expose it a bit more, mark it out and then expose something else. There's usually a couple of different components of it. Um, search that out, mark it, photograph it, move back, and then report it. And then we call up the guys with the bomb suits, the EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal guys. They come in a little bit like the movie Hurt Locker, a little yep. bit. It's very unrealistic, that film, but um, it is a, kind of a, an okay example. And then um, they, they either blow it in place with BIP or they remove it or they... Um, uh, disarm it, which is the most dangerous 
thing you can do. Um, most of the time they just blow it in place and uh, we can move on because it's very like it's boom and it's gone. Um, the other way is is for our engineer co- commander. So it wasn't me. It was my mate Livo. Um, he was our engineer brick commander, and he would he had the he had the capability to go and, and bip something uh, in the ground. So um, and then we got the other aspect as well. So we're all we're, we're just, right now we're just talking about IEDs. Um, yep. There's the other thing that we search for, and that's cached weapons. So that's the parts and the weapons in which these guys use to wage war, to make IEDs, to fire, to, you know, rifles and RPGs and stuff. Finding that is a whole lot different. It's it's a little bit less dangerous because it's not set up to blow up most of the time. Sometimes they're booby-trapped. Most, you know, 99.99% they're not, but we treat it as if it is. And that is like an Easter egg hunt. As funny as that sounds, it is exciting. It's exhilarating. We do this because we know we we get excited on this because it's taking away the warfighting capability. They go back to being farmers. They go back to being mechanics. It, it's the insurgents, you know, that they're, they're not stupid. They know what they're doing. They know <clears throat> how we work most of the time, and that's what creates sort of the the weird dynamic between that whole situation in Afghanistan, where we don't know who the uh, the enemy is. A couple of questions straight off that. So when the obvious question. When you are, or get again back to your thoughts on what your initial thoughts on Afghanistan was, but who is the enemy? Who is the Af- enemy in Afghanistan? Yeah, or well, at, at that time it was the Taliban. Um, you know, we went over to or Australia's commitment to Afghanistan was in part um, with the United States after September 11, looking for Al Qaeda, and um, and that was. Um, and the Taliban became the enemy because they were harbouring and they were in control of the nation at the time. Um, and that's that's who sort of resisted um, uh, our influence and, and, and uh, our mission to, to try and um, neutralise the, the Al-Qaeda contingents, the terrorist organisations that the Taliban were harbouring. So, okay. um, yeah. And before I get back to your arrival in Afghanistan, I want to get back to that point. When you're out patrolling, for whatever the the appropriate term is, and you've described what you're doing when you're trying to navigate a safe path and clear any IEDs, and you describe being down on your hands and knees and scraping bits of dirt out, how are you dealing with the the tension and the stress of your occupation? Um. Through training, it's um, the the training that we're provided is world class. It's given to us both on a, by military um, experience, so through operational experience. So a, a number of my friends that went deployed, like I said, that I was willing to to say yes so quickly, were the people that were teaching us from prior deployments. Um, so that's really good, really really valuable knowledge, and that's where most of it comes from. But there's also a sort of a um, a contracted component to it that. Um, you know, it could be someone that's from the metal detector company that that trains us into um, using certain devices and, and how that's best applied. But at the same so that, time, that, that's that that's that I understand that as the physical training to deal with it. Yeah. But what about the mental component and and the strict? Like, it sounds highly bloody stressful, mate. 
It really it, it sounds like the most stressful thing anyone could put themselves through when when, when your life's on the line and you and your mates behind you and you're trying to protect them. That's not just a bloody like that's a high stress environment, surely. Yep, hundred percent. But like, I, I think maybe maybe ignorance is bliss. I think I think that I, I would I hate to say that, but I think that's what it might be. Um, also, you know, the task needs to be done. And we have an obligation to our mates behind us, to the patrol, to, to Afghanistan, and, and, and to get this done. And, and we're the ones that are trained in this. So, um, you know, with all the the equipment and training that we have, that sort of gives us I don't know, the the confidence to to continue. Um, and the the um, yeah, I never really thought it. I I personally never found an IED on the ground, um, but both of my colleagues in my brick did a pitch and, and Wurtzi, they found IEDs um, in the days leading up to me getting hurt. But I I found a number of cached components in, in a very different situation. But the, the threat and the feeling at the same time is one of both, you know, excitement, um, fear, um, nerves, all of that stuff is, is all mm. encompassing into that, that feeling of when you're first, opening up things or, or brushing the dirt away in order to, to search something. So it is an interesting time. But, yeah, I, I guess you just get the job done so you can go home. <laughs> yeah. So, again, back to the question, um, uh, normally I'd start to say to you, I'm taking up a lot of your time, but I'm quite aware that you can't leave anywhere. So <laughs> I'm, I'm at the advantage here because you're in quarantine. Curtis, so y- your initial thoughts, you, you get off a plane in Afghanistan. What are your thoughts? What are you seeing? How are you being received by the the local people? Where are you? What, what What's it actually like? How does it smell? How does it feel? So we got into Afghanistan uh, in June, which is summer there, so what they call the fighting season as well because yeah. the the trees all have leaves, the crops are all growing and there's concealment for the enemy to, to sort of do their thing without us seeing them very well. Um, it, Like you said before, Afghanistan is incredibly mountainous. Um, the, the valley, the mountains are huge, the valleys are wide and... Um, in the middle of these valleys is these big, great big green veins of life where the rivers are. So the the, the farmers there are quite um, ingenious and they all the way down the river there's always these little offshoots. They're called aqueducts and they it makes it look like the water's going uphill because of the way the land is, but the actual river's going further downhill than you think. And they're able to, at, in the mornings, they'll open up a little like channel in the aqueduct and it'll flow out onto their crops huh. and then they'll close it and like fill the crops up with like several inches of water that waters them and then they'll shut that off and then that's the water for the day and they might do it at night time. Um, and so it makes the, the, the fields all really muddy and difficult to, to walk through. Um, <clears throat> the, the people um, are... They were always happy to see us. We never saw anyone that was like, you know, get out of here, go away. Like that. They were, they knew what we were doing. I think they were happy to see that we were in the area, um, trying to make the place free and, and, and safe. Um, and you know, one occasion we we got um, the opportunity to have some flatbread and chai tea 
um, with the locals. And we were always working with Afghan National Army as well, I should bring up. Um, yes. We were there as a mentoring task force. So we were showing them how to operate, uh, to, to conduct themselves. So, um, yeah, and, and that's just sort of how everyday life interactions went. We, we you know, um, moved through the area. Um, sometimes the kids would knew that they knew that our vehicles were bulletproof and, and sort of rocket-proof as well in a way, I think. And um, they'd throw rocks at us just as shits and giggles, I guess. Um, and and <laughs> sometimes the poor soldier on top doing guard would, would cop a rock to the face and stuff like that. So we'd stop and talk to the elders and the elders would then talk to the kids and stuff like that. So you know, they're always receptacle of our um, communications and, and interactions. So uh, it, was, it was a good thing. So you, you arrived in the summer. <sighs> Are you focused in one area? Are you are you flying all around the country? Like, how's it work? Are you are you in a base? Yeah. So so initially we start off at a multinational base, Tarankout, which is the main base in the Uruzgan province. Yes. And then from there, there's all these little satellite bases, and the bigger ones are called forward operating bases, and the small ones are called patrol bases. And then there's. Uh, uh, combat posts, CPs, which are like tiny little, like little like guard towers in a way. Um, and that's how we would operate from. So we'd use these places from uh, like our night harbours. Sometimes we'd sleep out in, out in the wilderness in a harbour, um, but at most of the time... What do, you, what do you mean out in the wilderness in a harbour? What does that mean? So a harbour in the army sense is a, a secure little area that we've provided all-round security and, and fire support for each other. So okay. it, right it could on. be like a little circle, maybe like 50 to 100 metres wide uh, or diameter, and all the men are and, and uh, are securely sort of positioned around the outside of that. And then the... the um, Is there a physical fence or no? no it's no, it's, no, a, it's, it's a, a human a, fence. Yeah, it's a human. We're not, we're not, you know, we're not in a line all the way around. We're not sort of fanned out. We've got like, you know, Pods, you, and we usually use vehicles, so we're just sleeping off the the side of the vehicles with our our um, our swags, you know, tied up to the side of the the vehicle. So yeah, is is there fear? Mm. Not really. No, no. Sometimes on our, on our first patrol where we slept out in the out in the wilderness, we didn't have the vehicles with us, which meant. They were a little bit more exposed, and I think if the insurgents knew that, they might have had a go at us. But the the, the infantry commander that was with us on that patrol, there's probably about 25, 30 of us, maybe 25, and then there was a heap of Af- Afghanis. We we were quite a large force in, in that sense, um, so they probably weren't too keen on, on messing with us at the time. But, you know, sometimes the infantry are, like, chewing at the, the bit to try and not not, you know, antagonize them but you know come on we're here like let's go yeah yeah so whereas you know the engineers were looking at the dirt most of the time so we don't want anything to do with a firefight and uh, is it a certain amount of days on off like you just can't keep rolling like that you need a spell yeah yeah so yeah um sometimes there is no rest it's sometimes it's it's you know tw- Three weeks, four weeks, solid of of this sort of stuff, and it, it is incredibly fatiguing. And then you might because of the tension, you you always I, must have I, some tension I, in I you. Think or? It's, no, I don't think it's the tension. I think it's the actual demands of the of the role in which the engineers okay. were playing. Like it's quite mentally the physical demands, physically and mental demands, and mentally demanding because of the focus. Because you you realize you know that you're 
um, not liable. It, um, you you can provide a safer packet passage for anyone. So, you know, whether it's you or the school bus that's coming towards you, if you've searched that area, you're like, well, cool, like that's that's it. that's that's good for them, and. You know that that sort of mental demand, that mental sort of pressure, is is something that we we we're aware of. So yeah. So what when you get some time off again? Like, is it a couple of beers and oh like no, just no 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 alcohol. get out or no, no not at all? No, it's dry. There's no no, okay. no alcohol over there unless your special forces. I guess they they get a little bit more leniency because they. Yep. I think the your command may have wrongly assumed that their their job is is more dangerous so therefore they need a little bit more freedoms when they have free time which is as you would have been aware that there's been some issues with that but um they we'd you know sleep for and chill out most of the time and then you know go to the gym we'd you know there, there was a cafe on the um the big base the multinational base Tarankat, or tk as we called it good food there yeah, yeah, the, the the dining hall was really good. The actual Americans they had another uh, dining hall, and theirs was all American food. So a lot of the Americans that were a bit more health conscious would come to our dining hall and have a salad <laughs> um, and eat some vegetables. Um, yeah, and then then the cafe it was called Green Beans, and it yeah it made uh, made some pretty good coffee as well. So yeah, there was lots, and there's you know there was um, a, th- a place called Poppies, and it had like ping pong tables and pool tables and music, and you know, Fox Sports was set up so we could watch the footy, and, and the Olympics were actually on while we were there in London, <laughs> so got to watch that stuff, and yeah. That is the end of Curtis McGrath Part A, Part B, ready and waiting for you right now. Listener.